This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, featuring distinctly qualified global changemakers dedicated to creating a healthier planet. One where our unique gifts are lived, expressed, and celebrated. I'm your host, Julian Guderlei. I'm here with Ryan Camp today. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you, Julian. Good to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation with you about all things regeneration, what it means, how we embody this in our life. You recently started a leadership academy. Um, I want to hear about your process with that and you know how you, how you embody that path of caring for earth and guiding people back into living from that purpose. So let's start right there. Maybe let's demystify a few of these words. And we'll start with purpose. What is purpose for you and how can we connect with that through our hearts? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. And something that I think many of, many of us around the world are, are confused with because I think that we've been taught in general uh, to look for purpose or most things in our life externally. And I think that when we end up looking for purpose outside of ourselves, or even to the depth where I understand it now is that I am purpose itself. I'm not actually looking for it. The way that I live my life as a walking prayer of what I believe in and what is true and, and integral to me, that is my purpose because it's me. So really what I see purpose being as a as a as a keystone of understanding what it is is interconnection or non-separation so how do we begin to actually embody our own truth and live in that capacity and then we become the purpose that we're looking for in the world um, so for me purpose really is about kind of as ramda says polishing the mirror which would mean how do you how do you carry yourself about in the world as the thing that you are looking for in the world itself. Right on. And, and that, you know, that really needs us to understand what is the idea of purpose from the external to let that kind of deflate and volume down this purpose from the external of becoming uh, this version of you that the television tells you, right, or that your your social media stream tells you, yeah. So that we have space to kind of up the volume and what comes from the inside. I I really like that definition and that attempt of defining the word purpose. There's something that's been coming through in in the last few episodes, and that is that the human intelligence is expressed in relationship, in relationship to self in this mirror that you express, and in relationship, in like a real relationship, in a lived relationship with our bonds of affection, connection, community. What do you, what do you make out of this? Out of relationship? Mm -hmm. And the intelligence that comes through the experience in relationship. Yeah, I think another word for relationship is interbeing um, or interconnectedness. And a phrase that I've continued to learn and am learning deeper into every single day is, is, is the phrase Mataki Owasan, which is uh, for all our relations. And, and really what, what that is meaning for me is that how do I witness myself as an integral piece in this ever unfolding interconnected 
life um, that is happening around me, the fact that I am unable to breathe without the co-participation of trees or the algae in the ocean, or I would be unable to survive without this water that I'm drinking, or I'd be unable to uh, prepare food without the fire, or I'd be unable to eat without this bounty of nourishment that comes from the ground all around us and beautiful colors and that just bring us into a beauty way of life. And I think uh, relation or interbeing is, is really the crux of how we can begin to reconnect with who we truly are, which is where we find our own, our own walking purpose in this life. And I think that relationship can kind of ripple out in so many different directions, but we are always in relationship with something. Um, and I think that the, the really deep learning that comes in is how do we begin to, to learn from these other beings, which we can call our ancestors, right? I think even the word ancestors has been kind of co-opted to mean only our human direct lineage of ancestors, but um, plants are ancestors, animals are ancestors, and the elements are ancestors. So how do we begin to learn from these these really powerful teachers and allies and family of ours that we are actually uh, elementally, like if you look at the periodic table of elements, we're made of the same elements as these mm -hmm. teachers of ours, right? So how do we begin to, to allow that sort of life, the, the natural co-creation through the elemental behavior of what we are truly made up of to come through us, to enable us to live in such a way of, of harmony with all of our ancestors around us day to day in relationship? That is a powerful question to ask. I, I believe that how questions usually show up as we live that path, right? We can then look back and understand, oh, that's how we did it. Um, but the, the intent to reconnect with that, for me, that is what regeneration is, is, is kind of about. And maybe that's the next buzzword or definition to demystify here with you. Like, what is regeneration and regenerative living and regenerative you know building what is that for you how do you describe it the most simple way that i can describe it is allowing life to flow through us unbridled by the constraints that we put upon ourselves for that creational power that we all hold um, another way to put it would be as Paul Hawkins says, regeneration is putting life at the center of every action. If you look at a natural ecosystem, regeneration happens fluidly throughout time. And really what it does is the ecosystem provides the conditions for self-organization of that ecosystem to continually provide more life to all of its inhabitants. So really, if we are just a node in this regenerative ecosystem that we call life here on, on planet Earth, which is another way to look at regeneration is just literally life, right? Like our cells are regenerating every single moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, so really, regeneration for me, and, and as you said, kind of building or uh, I I've been using the word suturing a lot. So I think that really part of this process for me is that we've been tossed into a really deep perceptual illusion of separation 
where really for, for regeneration to occur or for more life to unfold through us, that creates the conditions for more life to unfold around us and in us. We need to suture ourselves back into the interconnection of what we truly are, which is nature, which is God, which is the environment, whatever we want to call, whatever we want to call that. Um, so regeneration for me is, is the process of, of allowing life to, to move through you in such a way that you are purpose and you are fulfilling um, the natural higher order of, of what's unfolding here on planet earth and and potentially even beyond that you say sutra as a verb uh suture uh-huh. yeah suture is like imagine like a wound is kind of like open like let's say you fall on the street and like split your knee open mm. suturing would be kind of like stitching Uh, back together so really like our heart and and ourselves have been separated from the natural world I think a lot of it's based on our our language and English being a language that's mostly noun-centered or objectification-centered versus a lot of traditional languages are process-oriented and verb-centered so as we begin to re-enter into a process-oriented version of perception including ourselves as a process not a stagnant being we are restitching or re-suturing ourselves back into the interconnectedness of us as a part of this unfolding drama of nature beautifully put i'm glad you you define that a bit more yeah i didn't know the word that's that's why i asked um you know this is the, the beauty of uh being uh yeah a lifelong learner is you can ask questions especially when it's not my my mother tongue um Ryan, kind of, you know what yeah, it's kind of interesting because because you can suture with a sutra because sutra just means thread mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it i think that's actually that that's a keen observation that i wasn't thinking about well it's, it's, it's what my my german ears heard um, yeah cool some sometimes you know despite having lived in north america for 10 years the the hearing of certain pronunciations and this is happening to me right now here in brazil uh with portuguese quite a bit you know which i am finally getting to the place where i feel like i'm, I'm mastering portuguese as a colloquial language and you know reading books etc but then sometimes quite often actually there are sounds that people make that my 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 hearing can't put into letters so i can mm-hmm. feel the sound i can kind of understand the context at this point always but the the attention to the sound and how it turns into letters is anyway, it's a very fascinating process for me because language and, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and, and some of the things I share language for me is like a key to see patterns and to let go of certain patterns. Cause as you just said, Ryan, like the way our English dominant language is making everything into objects rather than verbs, you know, it changes our perception. And I would take that even a bit further. I think language is just a reflection of that. There seems to be like a false image in many people's consciousness, possibly in all of our consciousness at times. And we, we, we kind of want to purge that false image of, you know, nature as our uh, enemy, as nature is something we need to dominate as ourselves, as you just said, as something that needs to be rigid and perfect rather than understanding nature as a process, nature as life itself, us as a part of this process and us as a humble participant in this cycle, right? And when we, when we understand this, I believe that's step one and the false image 
is deflating and has less and less power. But then understanding isn't actually enough in the sense that understanding is still conceptual. And, you know, we've, if you've gone to a public school, you've been taught conceptual thinking. But conceptual thinking and conceptualizing everything is still like a weird bypass that leads us back to this false image. And in the, in the end, I, I believe that the real learning, the real growth, the real experience and seeing life and experiment happens when, when we simply embody and step into trial and error with our thoughts into how do they fit into real life? Because life is not lived in a virtual reality goggle. You know, life is lived in the human body in, in, in nature. Mm -hmm. Totally. Two, two phrases come to mind that, that remind me of what you just said. One of them is from Ramdas, where he says, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Another one is a very random one that comes from Fight Club. Sticking feathers up your butt does not make you a chicken. Right? And, <laughs> and I, think that, I, I think the continual hyper-intellectualized kind of society that we live in that worships the mind and then the core uh, comes secondary I think really what what we're seeing happen now and and where the true transformation lies is in that 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 short journey from the mind to the heart, which will be the longest journey of our entire lives. Um, but really reorienting where we are getting our our intelligence and information and building the world with the mind around the heart, as opposed to building the world of the mind and trying to find the heart afterwards. Um, so I agree with you completely in that, in that the conceptualization, I think, uh, I, I think it's in the right direction. It, it, it's really cool to see a lot of these concepts being thrown around, but simultaneously to stop at the concept is, is disintegrated. And, and this is why I think that the world is disintegrating is because we actually are not moving from the mind to the heart with the embodied version of these, of these truly deep life ways, not life concepts. And I think to begin to really touch into philosophy, a lot of Western philosophy is, is based on thinking about problems. And I think a lot of traditional philosophy is based on having figured out the, the solution to those problems and then sharing it as opposed to just thinking about it. So it's really just action over action over thought or heart over mind. Um, not over actually, because I don't want to make it hierarchical, but utilizing um, the action to inform the thought. Using the heart to inform the mind. I want to dig a bit deeper into your story there, Ryan, and where this kind of learning and this kind of growth um, kind of originates in your own life path because we just you know we we just heavily criticize conceptual thinking even though you you saved it there for a second so let's go into the experience and the embodied story of ryan right i know that there is a ton of intercultural learning i know that there's a ton of traveling in your story um uh, there's there's probably one or the other plant medicine that supported some of the growth as well and and a whole web of connectivity with indigenous people. So wherever you want to pick this up, I want to hear a bit of your story and, you know, really demystifying what we just said about embodiment and, and, and share how that journey so far has been for you. Yeah. Well, I grew up uh, in a town north of Boston in Massachusetts. And 
I played for a year and a half at university. I played division one baseball and realized that I'd kind of sacrificed something that I actually wanted to do to continue to play baseball. And there came to be this point of the non-ability for me to contain what I actually wanted to continue to do, which was to travel and experience the world. So when I was 20, I ended up um, quitting the team and I moved directly to Hong Kong to study Chinese philosophy. And just moving from basically what I would call my myopic view of the world and culture into one of this really cosmopolitan dynamic um, city and then access to all these other beautiful places in Southeast Asia, which I was traveling to, just really opened my eyes to the expanse of, of what life truly is. And I realized that I had not even ingested one one hundredth of, of what is actually out there in the world. And from that point, I went back to Boston and very quickly left again and moved to Valencia in Spain and finished out all of my college credits in Spain. And soon thereafter, I was recruited by a social entrepreneurship professor at, the, at Northeastern University where I attended school uh, to go to a farming village in Cameroon in Central Africa named Bali Nyonga in the Northwest of the country uh, to, to work with farmers to see why um, there was 50 to 60% food spoilage rates in these farming confederations. So when I was 22, uh, my first official job was to live in this farming village in Cameroon. And day to day, I would hop on the back of a motorcycle, which in pidgin is called Okada. And I'd just roll down these really muddy rural roads to these really remote farming confederations and just begin talking and learning from, from these people. And never in my life had I seen that amount of joy. And hand in hand with that, never in my life had I seen this amount of poverty. And these kind of conceptions that I had of, of worth and value and happiness and privilege and seeing myself and, and learning about the histories of, of uh, European colonists who had went into those areas. And just this, that was like a major unfolding point in my life, uh, going to the stream to get water, to shower in the morning, going to a market and killing my own chicken if I wanted to eat chicken, like just thrust into this, this, this village life and learn, just learned so much and it really shifted. And I think I entered into the first first stage of this initiation, which was um, understanding that 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 me myself as a as a being who is in this unique um, seat of skin color, education, um, access, privilege, I can actually utilize my my skill set and my being to to create transformational change by learning as opposed to by like forcing my perspective onto something, which is which is a common um, thread that a lot of grassroots development at first would take is they'd come into a place and they're like, drop 150 computers and the people actually just wanted two toilets, you know? So it like shifted the way that I mm. understood the importance of learning. Mm. Um, and then I just continued to travel from that point forward had really powerful experiences when I was in Israel um, and ended up moving to Hawaii uh, where I learned from so many beautiful teachers and started to grow my own food and understand working with the Aina and the spirits of the land and 
I mean, I just basically traveled for the next um, close to 11 years, um, continually learning and intertwining these really interesting business models that would um, be centered around entire stakeholder chain benefit while simultaneously creating a business that would function and that would take care of the of the actual shareholders themselves like i'll give one example for example in in myanmar uh i was living in myanmar for a little bit in the ayurwadi river delta region and we were building microgrid solar in in accordance with swadeshi which is a gandhian economic theory i don't i don't, I don't think it was his theory i think he like kind of channeled the theory uh for intervillage sustenance and production so that you wouldn't have to have these massive swaths of urbanization which resulted in loss of culture loss of language and loss of things that really root people into the earth so we would bring microgrid solar out there and then subsidize mangrove forest restoration in the bay of bengal with the actual excess energy that was produced from the microgrids so we were actually helping the country buffer itself from continuous flooding that was occurring on the coasts due to global warming related issues and simultaneously stopping urbanization and allowing people to live their traditional lives which they loved um, by bringing energy out there in the most efficient and uh, low footprint way possible so i kind of just ended up traveling and doing a lot of these things and learning and and my last time in India in 2019, it felt like this coalescing of, of understanding that everything I'd been traveling and learning, it all like just sucked into a framework. And I was like, oh, it's all the same thing. <laughs> like, wow, there's, it's all interrelated. Like I really saw the interconnection for, for the first time in like a really profound and deep way. And then that's kind of how I've then been able to, to move forward is in this embodied interconnected understanding that sustainability is yoga, you know, like all of these things are not separate from one another. Um, they're all, they're all fractals and pieces of this beautiful mosaic that we call life. Yeah. Thank you for sharing a little bit of that, of that story and some insights into that. I feel, you know, based on the conversation we were having so far in this episode, it's important to come back to that mosaic that we call life and the interconnection of all these fractals. That is true about real life and the journey of embodied experience. That is not true for the false image of life, the, the virtual digitalized image of who you should be. Because hmm. right? that is actually not connected to yoga or regeneration or sustainability in, in a pure sense. There is this, this difference that, you know, for me, it has entered through travel, through intercultural learning, through humbling myself over and over again in other cult cultures and countries to realize, you know, in order to learn a language, you got to make a bunch of mistakes. And when you make mistakes, it always feels kind of weird. And that's a, that's a joyful feeling once you embrace it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious there to hear a bit more about some of the values that you, you learn to distinguish and discern. So for me, trust has become one of the main curiosities in this podcast. And so I'm curious to hear what is the experience of trust for you in all these different cultural experiences or, or in your work that you're doing today? Like, what does trust feel like in your body, Ryan? It feels like the the release of resistance. Kind of if 
to not trust and a lot a lot of what i've learned is actually like neti neti like not this not that as they say and and in the book i am that uh nisargadatta says like you have to understand what you're not to understand what you are and i think so when i feel not in trust what that feels like is uh, a shell in some way that creates a, an irritability and a lack of a, a lack of connection in the sense that I'm 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 unwilling to allow others to live into their highest expression, um, which basically means I'm I'm unwilling to allow others to trust themselves for what they have learned how to do, and I think that really it stems from fear which stems into control so really a lack of trust is a uh, super saturation of control in my system so by being able to to come into trust i've it, it's really helped to kind of witness synchronicities unfold in my life continuously because i've come to the point where i'm realizing that like outside of me showing up and there's this really cool light, uh, bumper sticker in Hawaii. It's one of my favorite ones I've ever seen. It's just like 90% of life is showing up. <laughs> it's probably 100% actually, but I think, I think just continually showing up and then watching what unfolds, if you can show up in a place of receptivity, uh, continuing to do that as a practice has shown me that I actually really don't have anything to fear. So if I don't have anything to fear, then I can fully trust. And as long as I can continue to show up and understand that I am but one fractal in this higher cosmic order that is looking to create more life, which we can call regeneration, that really ushers me into a place of complete trust. Uh, and, and plus, it feels a lot better. It doesn't feel good to, to shut yourself off from the world. So kind of experimenting with what it feels like and what it doesn't feel like, it really helps to, to bring us into, into a felt sense of how beautiful it is to allow another person to, to be trusting of themselves, uh, which relays out through us. Thank you for that answer. I'm gonna let that one sink in and move to another question that is somewhat contextually related about, you know, allowing another person you just said to, to be or to express or to live in their gift, right? Um, there's trust that is required for that. But then I want to dive deeper into this idea of what an individual gift is or uniqueness, right? We spoke about this before we hit record here, like the, the connection between uniqueness and unity. And um, so maybe in your own words, what role does uniqueness and each person's gift play in the unfolding of life? just brings so much beauty like how strange it would be if every fruit tree only had an orange uh, so kind of touching on that topic with unity and, and uniqueness when i kind of had that realization the other day that these two things that seem juxtaposed they're actually the same because they both have uni in front of them it's just so it's so interesting that that we can all be so unique in our in our gifts and the way that we express ourselves which bring the flavor to life kind of kind of in the way that a curry you cook a curry and there's just so many different flavors going on and you can taste the depth of the flavor and the curry 
And I think that really the uniqueness is that depth of flavor and depth of beauty that that brings passion and brings uh, love and, and just conjures up gratitude for life. And I think that within within that uniqueness, we are all one. And we're all one in the sense that we all breathe the same air. Or as like as Bob Marley says, right? Like like one blood, you know, like we all we all are bleeding. We all we all have a heart. Um, so I think that really unity in uniqueness is something that really encapsulates the, the beauty way of life. And, uh, there's another interesting one that I, that I find coming up a lot now at this point in time around identity. And I was curious, I like looked the other day, I was like, what's the root word of identity? And at least in the French, it's identité, which means sameness. And I think it's so interesting because we use identity to separate when really our unique identities are supposed to interconnect us into a tapestry of belonging. And I find it so curious that we have uh, unity and uniqueness or identity and sameness juxtaposed when really they're the same thing. Well, that's where, you know, the beauty of the paradox begins, right? So in the free mind, and thanks for quoting Bob Marley there already, um, <laughs> I, I, I have come to the realization that any episode in which Bob Ali is quoted is a good episode. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so not, none but ourselves can free our mind from mental slavery, right? So yeah. I'm butchering this a little bit, but this is another quote from him, which has resonated in me so deeply over the last decade, actually, because what is mental slavery? It's when we can't allow that paradox to exist and we need a certain answer, ideally from an external uh, source, right? And so that's what I call the fake image or the false image is in this false image, identity is a number and you become this number or maybe, uh, you know, nowadays a QR code. And when you are this number or this QR code, then you're singled out to be this, this, this rigid piece of existence. But paradoxically, identity is actually a, a point of liberation, as you just said, because it allows us to be uniquely who we are. And that is, you know, one of my, the personal purposes that's beating in my own heart is, is, you know, empowering and encouraging individuals to express their unique gifts to the world so that this unity can be experienced, as you said, as a fabric or a tapestry of interconnection. Mm. Beautiful. It's a process, right? It's a process. It's mm. a process of letting go of that mental slavery and, standing in the unknown and that's why i wanted to ask you about your intercultural learning a few minutes ago because in this intercultural learning letting go of what you used to know is a integral part of the process you yes. can't just come there with the massachusetts values or the, the german values and say like wait a, wait a second guys you're doing it all wrong <laughs> right yeah totally and yeah, then you I, let go something yeah. new starts to happen i love that yeah it brings me into the phrase, uh, expand beyond the threshold of who you think that you are. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Bob Marley is just so potent, right? And, and part, of, part of what I think is, happens with this mental slavery, just to, to touch back onto that point, is I think we're slaves to a, to a linear mechanized interpretation of, of time. Mm. So we become slaves to something that's not real because seasonality and the cyclicality of nature is not linear mm -hmm. so like we're already misinterpreting the way that things are functioning by 
becoming disconnected from the seasonality and, and the non-linearity of nature. And we become enslaved in being run by the clock. And essentially we're just, we're just burnt out and, and just spent by time, right? Like we commoditize our own souls for how much do you pay me per hour? And essentially, we become enslaved to this linearity, to this mechanized culture, which is not coherent with actually the natural systems that are unfolding. Mm-hmm. And, and that's I think, really, yeah. please, yeah, finish your thought. Uh, yeah, I was just going to relate it back to, in order to expand beyond the threshold of who we truly are, of, of what we really are, um, we need to usher in and learn from nature. And the way that I've begun to view this is in Texas, where I'm currently living, there's I've never seen so many vultures in my whole life Um, and vultures and and, and from the fungi kingdom, we can just look at funguses in general. These two beings sit on the precipice of death and, and new life. Right. And I think that when we usher in decomposition, which is part of the life cycle, there's life, there's decomposition, there's death, and they all interconnect into one. When we bring in the decomposition, of something that's no longer serving the ecosystem of our own selves, of our relationships, of our communities, of our organizations. We usher in more life by creating compost for future growth. And I think if we're stuck in stagnation by the inability to decompose or metabolize what's what's no longer serving us, which I think grief is a really big key of this. And, and I do, I, I've been ushering in more grief practices into the work that I do, but once we're able to decompose or metabolize that we we free up so much space for for new growth and that's really how we continually expand uh is by decomposing so yeah beautiful which in turn is you know it's not a definition but it's it's a very eloquent example of what regeneration is it's a process of life Mm -hmm. decomposing is a big element of that So it's not something that the human mind created. It's something that the human mind made sense of by observing the process of life, right? So regeneration is a cycle. It's a, it's a pulse of life. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Well, we've already touched some, some beautiful places in this conversation. Um, I want to know a little bit more about your journeys in the world and some of the stories behind it. So you mentioned, you know, um, different places on the map so far from Asia to Africa to, you know, Europe, North America. If you were to give us like one more story from one of your favorite places where your heart really opened to become who you truly are, where would that story take us? Yeah, I'll share the one that just bubbled up. I think I think this story uh, I've shared it a few times with with friends, and it's really become kind of this like med- medicinal story in a lot of different ways for people. And it's a story uh, where which I was involved in, but I wasn't actually the one uh, who's leading the story. So we were in uh, Mysuru in Karnataka in India, and uh, the amazing teacher and guide we were learning from named Sri Vijay Kopala uh, at his school called Yoga Gita. That's where I was learning Ashtanga Yoga. And Yoga Gita means yoga 
as it is. Well, Gita is the song, right? Like the Bhagavad Gita is the song of life, but Yoga Gita, the, the phrase he uses, yoga as it is. And he was he was driving amidst just gnarly Indian traffic, like people rolling stands on the street, cows beeping, buses that are like coming six inches from like your rear, some of your mirrors and everyone was beeping and, and yelling and screaming and there's fumes coming up from cars and he was just, he just sat there and he just would go beep, beep, ha, 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 beep, beep, ha, ha, ha. And he would, he was playing in the, in the chaos of traffic. And I just remember that moment where it was just like, wow, like we don't need to get caught up in the chaos. Like there's a place where we can exist beyond the chaos and and play in the lila of what is happening in this life. And I just remember like the, the true authenticity that he was really playing in that in that gnarly hectic traffic just like blew my mind because it, it, it's so easy to get sucked into the suffering and the pain of life. And, and in a way, as Ramdas says, suffering is graced and it's all grist for the mill. But simultaneously to that, there is a place behind that where you can sit and, and witness it all happening and not get caught up in it or not continue to react from a place of past patterning or not continue to create more separation and more polarization in the world. You actually can, can sit in that place and play the game of traffic. You can sit in that place and play the game of an argument and it doesn't mean indifference. It doesn't mean not. It doesn't mean uh, not fully participating in it. It just is maintaining two different places within you um, that allows you to to not get fully submerged and sucked into a reality. And I think that in the world that we're in now, I think that that, that image for me has been really important because it's so easy to to just strike a match and light an entire fire that burns bridges and burns relationships. And there's a part of us that, that when we're able to remain centered in that place in our heart, which is beyond confusion and beyond all of this polarization and beyond all this labeling, we can, we can act from a place of, of truth and of love. And that story with VJ, I mean, VJ taught me so much. Um, shared so much so just th that time in india for me india's india's a magical place for me i've it's my favorite food in the world i love the music the amount of culture and different cultures throughout all the different states in india yeah for me it's just magic so that's the story i'll share for now eat eat <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, yeah there's there's definitely some deep lessons in that story for anyone who's been to India and who's been in Indian traffic to not find your fury, rage, and frustration in it is already a big achievement. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you, Ryan. I have two more questions for this episode. And, um, and before we close, I'd, I'd be uh, happy to hear a bit more about your programs and what you offer and how people can connect with you. But first, you know, going from your story to the important pivotal piece of 
how we educate ourselves and others. I think we, we don't need to dissect the current education system in the mainstream paradigm. We already know that that's you know, a limited form of brainwash. Um, what would you bring to education that you, know, you, you believe is, is, is important, is like a key piece to um, nourish and, and, and uh, create freedom in, in, in children, in kids, in teenagers, in basically in anyone? What would you bring to education? I would bring more diverse perspectives and lenses into the classroom and extend that classroom out into those people's lives. So for example, uh, that would include multi-generationality. So I think it would include bringing in elders of, the, of a specific community in to, to learn about their stories and learn about their experiences. It'd be bringing in other cultures and bringing the students out into those places to begin to experientially learn what, what the cultures have encapsulated into their worldview and life way. Uh, and I think it would just intertwine a lot more creative expression and ability to really assess, to find a child's true genius, uh, true inner guiding spiritual force. Um, because for example, the family that I live with in Texas, the children are, are homeschooled, but they're not, they're not forced to learn in a, in a specific way. They're not kind of compartmentalized into taking the MCAS tests or whatever these like bubble tests are that you have to take. It's like they can kind of just play and, and run around and learn in their own way with, with some guidance in that capacity. And people from all over the world come and, and get to meet these children and they get to learn like, like the other day, like they got home late and, and the daughter came, came back and just had tea with us. And like, we were playing guitar and she was freestyling. You know, it's like, whoa, how cool. Like this five-year-old child's freestyling with me on the guitar. And simultaneously she goes outside and a ladybug or a frog is hurt. And she just naturally knows how to reiki this this being. And it's just like incredible. Yeah. So I think that ushering in less constraint and simultaneously uh unique lenses of of the world would be really beneficial in education that is not only conceptual, but is experiential simultaneously. Beautiful. And my, you know, my last question is about your dream for seven generations into the future, your dream for planet earth, for us in this moment in time and, and how we impact these seven generations into the future. What is it that you, you want to share on, on that note? One of my favorite quotes that one of my teachers on the Big Island shared with me is she said, we are dancing the sacred dream awake. And I think for that to happen in this ancient future that we're finding ourselves moving back towards <laughs> in a, a nonlinear way, I think by utilizing and listening to the technologies of nature and the technologies of life itself, if we can orient our own technological innovation that complements the technologies of nature and the technologies of life, then we're going to be leading us our, ourselves into a place um, of true regeneration and, and a state of, of interconnectedness and peace and community and fulfillment and gratitude and 
and just reverence for the miracle that it is that we get to wake up every day and be on this planet and this absolute great mystery that life is. Um, so we're basically orienting ourselves towards the proliferation of more life. And I think that it requires us to get over a level of hedonism that we've been introduced to and comfortability that like that we don't want to dig in the dirt and plant seeds and we don't want to do do the hard work. We want to sit behind a computer and make money without even while we're sleeping and all these things. Right? I mean, all of that can continue, but I think that we really need to move into a place of accepting that with great freedom comes great responsibility and with great gifts comes great reciprocity. And how do we usher in that circuitry by truly feeling the reverence and the gratitude that we have for life and orienting ourselves in a way that uh, actionably uh, honors that reverence. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your your journey a bit, your your values, the path of embodiment that you're on, the work you do in the world. Ryan, where can people find you or connect with you about your um, Regenerative Academy and um, connecting people to purpose the way you do? Yeah, my, my Instagram is at Ryan J underscore Kemp, K-E-M-P. Uh, I have a website, www.ryanjkemp.com. And my uh, regenerative business consulting company is named Pueo Consulting. And Pueo is the short-eared Hawaiian owl. And the owl is symbolic of ancestral wisdom and guardianship and a holistic way of viewing things as the owl's head can basically almost turn 360 degrees. It's also a diurnal and nocturnal animal. It, it navigates through the light and the dark. Um, and Pueo essentially assists organizations in bringing in and turning them into aligned vehicles for authentic uh, change and social transformation and the maximization of their creativity and value. So th those, those three places people could find me. I also have a couple of different books on Amazon, two children's books that I've written. A, a poetry book is up there. And then another book that I wrote after my time in India in 2019 called The Age of Separation, how to use the illusion of separation to find unity. Um, so any one of those four channels may be able to, uh, people would be able to find me through there. Make sure to link that out as well in, in the show notes so people can click it easily. Thank, Thank you. you, Ryan. Thanks for your, your path, for your presence, and for this uh, inspiring conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Julian. It's always a pleasure to connect with you.